Section 27 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. Following the death of Henry Purcell in 1695, who had produced 39 English operas, or half-operas, as Chrysander calls them, since they consisted of drama interspersed with musical scenes, Music in England had for several years been confined to vocal and instrumental concerts and comic singing and dancing entertainments. Thus the beautiful seed of Purcell's genius had fallen upon barren ground. The promise of an English school of opera which seemed to lie in his work remained unfulfilled. Taste had degenerated to such a degree that the time was ripe for the successful introduction of Italian opera, the exotic and irrational entertainment which Johnson made the subject of his caustic censure. Beginning with 1705, the Drury Lane Theatre, and later the Haymarket, became the scenes of triumph for Italian singers, displaying their art in the degenerate works of their countrymen. With the production of Thamyris, Queen of Scythia, in which airs of Scarlatti and Bononcini were used in arrangements by John Pepusch, there came into vogue that confusion of tongues which Addison ridiculed in The Spectator. After commenting upon the rhetorical absurdities of the erstwhile translations, he says, The next step to our refinement was the introducing of Italian actors into our opera who sung their parts in their own language at the same time that our countrymen performed theirs in our native tongue. The king or hero of the play generally spoke in Italian and his slaves answered him in English. The lover frequently made his court and gained the heart of his princess in a language which she did not understand. One would have thought it very difficult to have carried on dialogues after this manner without an interpreter between the persons that conversed together, but this was the state of the English stage for about three years. At length the audience grew tired of understanding half the opera, and therefore, to ease themselves entirely of the fatigue of thinking, have so ordered it at present that the whole opera is performed in an unknown tongue. We no longer understand the language of our own stage, insomuch that I have often been afraid when I have seen our Italian performers chattering in the vehemence of action, that they have been calling us names and abusing us among themselves. A little further on, he says, At present our notions of music are so very uncertain that we do not know what it is we like, only, in general, we are transported with anything that is not English, so it be of a foreign growth. Let it be Italian, French, or High Dutch, it is the same thing. In short, our English music is quite rooted out, and nothing yet planted in its stead. This was indeed the state of things when Handel settled in London. No wonder, then, that Rinaldo, composed by him in the space of two weeks, to the words of Aaron Hill, the director of the Haymark Theatre, was a tremendous success. The popularity of the music was such that the stirring march occurring in the score was adapted by the lifeguards as their regimental march to be used for nearly half a century thereafter. But we are prone to think that the public's enthusiasm was at least equally due to the vocal pyrotechnics of Nicolini Grimaldi, who, as Rinaldo, electrified his hearers in Cara Sposa and many other splendid arias, and the gorgeous staging which presented, among other things, a garden filled with live birds. Rinaldo held the boards of the Haymarket for fifteen consecutive nights, 
and was afterward revived in Hamburg and Naples. When Handel returned to Hanover at the close of the opera season, his taste for the duties of Kapellmeister had evidently been spoiled by his English experience, for he soon applied for and received permission for a second visit, on condition that he return within a reasonable time. He went there in November 1712, and produced another opera, Il Pastor Fido, which was not so successful. He was as much admired in other directions, however, as, for instance, when he would play the closing voluntaries at St. Paul's Cathedral, upon the invitation of the organist, Maurice Green, who, it is said, even volunteered to blow the organ so that he might hear Handel play. Meantime, Handel showed no intention to return to Hanover. Upon the conclusion of the Peace of Utrecht, March 31st, 1713, he was commanded to write music for its celebration by Queen Anne, for whom he had already written a birthday ode in February of the same year. The Te Deum and Jubilate, largely based on Purcell's composition of that name, which is still being annually performed at St. Paul's, was the result, and he was rewarded by the Queen with a life annuity of £200. He had not yet made up his mind to end his somewhat prolonged leave of absence when his patron appeared in London as George I of England, for in the meantime Queen Anne had died and the Hanoverian dynasty was brought in by the Whigs, to whom the Peace of Utrecht and Queen Anne, both sources of Handel's favour, were most obnoxious. Naturally, Handel was now in disfavour at court, but through the good offices of his friend, the Baron Kielmanseger, matters were adjusted in this wise. Handel was persuaded to compose a series of short instrumental pieces to be played in a barge, following the king during a nocturnal excursion upon the Thames. This water music so pleased the king that he inquired as to its composer, and finding that he was none other than his former Kapellmeister, demanded him into his presence to bestow upon him a pension equal to that which he had received from Queen Anne. His engagement as music master to the daughter of the Prince of Wales soon brought his income up to £600. In 1716, he accompanied the king on a visit to Hanover, and there composed his famous Brockus's Passion, Der für die Sünden der Welt gemartete und sterbende Jesus. Further impetus for the composition of sacred music came to handle through his appointment as chapelmaster to the wealthy Duke of Chandos, who, living in extraordinarily magnificent style at his palace, Canons, in Edgware, where he had built a private chapel after the Italian manner. With a splendid organ, good singers, and competent orchestra at his command, Handel was in a position to furnish fittingly magnificent music. Here he composed two te deums, and the twelve chandos anthems set for chorus and solos after the style developed since Purcell, in which we may see the root form of the English oratorio soon to follow. The first of these, indeed, followed soon after. It was the setting of a text by Humphrey, arranged from Racine's Esther. Much of the music was taken from his earlier passion, though its former use was radically different. After its original performance at Cannons in August 1720, when the Duke made Handel a present of £1,000 as a token of his appreciation, Esther was performed several times in public. The Serenata, Asis and Galatea, also belongs to the Chandos period, which was the stepping stone to Handel's final and greatest musician, the creation of Oratorio, 
First, however, we must briefly review the remainder of his operatic career. The Royal Academy of Music, formed for the production of Italian opera, engaged Handel's services in 1719, as well as those of the celebrated Bononcini, who now also took up his residence in London. As impresario, Handel visited Dresden, where Italian opera flourished, in order to secure a first-class company of singers, among whom were the famous male sopranos, Senesino and Berselli, and Signora Salvai. Radamisto was the first opera of Handel's to be performed. It created a sensation which was without precedent in England. It is difficult for us to comprehend the success of this work, dead as it is today. Nevertheless, the applause was tremendous, the theatre was packed to the doors, and persons were finally allowed to sit on the stage. The critics considered it superior to anything yet seen on an English stage, and Handel himself considered one of its arias, Ombra Cara, the best he had ever composed. Whatever our opinion today, there is no question that many of the forty-odd operas of which Radamisto was the first were far superior to those of any of his contemporaries. Indeed, his star shone so brightly that it dimmed the light of every other upon the operatic firmament of Europe. Two of the operas, Rinaldo and Radamisto, deserve special mention for breadth of conception as well as intrinsic musical value. In these two, Handel has reached at least a degree of dramatic power. He has treated with consummate skill the various sources and degrees of human passion and led his audience into a carefully woven web in which they became partakers in the subtleties of anxiety, joy, anger, and pathos. The remaining forty or so we may dismiss with a mere mention. Floridante, 1721, Ottone, 1723, Flavio, 1723, Giulio Cesare, Tamerlano, 1724, Alessandro, 1726, Riccardo Primo, re d'Inghilterra, 1726, all produced at the Royal Academy, are simply names to us. They have today not even a historical significance. Of interest because of the story connected with it is Muzio Sevola, in which the third act was written by Handel, the other two being supplied by his rivals Ariosti and Bononcini. Ariosti naturally was out of the running, but the acts by Bononcini and Handel, both of whom had hosts of partisans, now became the subject of a heated and general controversy which caught the entire English society in its whirl. The affair reminds of the war of Gluckists and Piccinists, which at a later period set all Paris aflutter. But while in that case a general principle was at stake, the personal merits of the two composers were the only issue here. The triviality of the discussion is reflected in the contemporary verse of John Byron, the Lancashire poet. Some say, compared to Bononcini, that mine hair handles but a ninny. Others aver that he to handle is merely fit to hold a candle. Strange all this difference should be, twixt Tweedledum and Tweedledee. The public soon surfeited of this affair and indeed of Italian opera altogether. The Academy became defunct in 1728. But Handel stubbornly held out. He formed a partnership with Heidegger, the manager of the Haymarket, 
risked his all and with mad industry continued to supply an imaginary demand late in that year he hurried to italy stopping at halle to visit his old mother now stricken with blindness on the way and incidentally came to know the neapolitan school of opera at its apogee under scarlatti he returned to london with a fresh personnel for the academy and during the following four seasons produced lotario seventeen twenty nine Partenope, 1730, Poro and Ezio, 1731, Sosarme and Orlando, 1732. Here the venture lagged. Boroncini's open rivalry in another theatre aggravated the situation, and various dissatisfactions, squabbles with singers, etc., which need not occupy us here, resulted in the dissolution of the partnership and the evacuation of the field in the enemy's favour. After a second trip to Italy, another attempt was made by Handel alone, in a theatre in Lincoln's Inn Fields, and later in Covent Garden, where, besides a new version of Il Pastor Fido, Tepsicori, and six more operas, he produced Alexander's Feast, composed to the words of Dryden's Ode. During 1735 and 1736, Handel was troubled with illness. The following year saw him bankrupt. Cuzzoni and Faustina, the wife of Hasse, those rivals whom Handel had propitiated by diplomatically composing music for both in one opera that should show their several excellencies without outshining each other. Senesino, the spoiled child of the London public, by offending whom Handel had alienated his aristocratic friends. The wonderful Farinelli, and all the Italian crew left England in disgust. Handel himself, worn out by renewed efforts as composer and impresario, was forced to seek recuperation in Aix-la-Chapelle. After his return, he made several more feeble essays at opera, of which Imeneo, 1740, and De Damia, 1741, were the last. The failure of the last years was, in a measure, offset by the success of a benefit concert given in 1738 at the instance of loyal friends. Moreover, the fact that Handel's statue was erected in Vauxhall Gardens at this time, an unprecedented honour for a living man, betokened the higher popular regard for his genius. The glories of that genius were in fact yet to be unfolded in their fullness, and in a field hitherto barely touched. Thoroughly chastened by his late failures, Handel gradually reached the conclusion that sacred music was best for a man in failing years. Chrysander describes how, toward the end of his operatic activity, he began to comprehend his true mission to be the union of the entire musical art, secular and ecclesiastic, of the preceding centuries in the form newly created by him, the oratorio. Whether we are sceptical about the sincerity of Handel's philosophy or not, he certainly had had ample opportunity to feel the public's pulse. As early as 1732, Aaron Hill had written him, urging that the English language was soft enough for opera, and that it was time the country were delivered from Italian bondage. That which now fastened Handel's attention upon the oratorio was more than anything else the changing taste of the English public, which primarily meant nothing but a demand for opera in English a reaction against the incomprehensible Italian warble and the falseness, the dramatic absurdity of the prevalent school of opera. 
Footnote. We may remind the reader of the valiant efforts made by Dr. Pepusch and other Anglo-Germans against the English public's absolute surrender to the Italian opera and Italian monody, holding out for the more serious contrapuntal music of the 16th century and for the use of the native tongue. The immense success of Gay's Beggar's Opera in 1728 was another proof of this demand for a native popular entertainment. End of footnote. As we have already pointed out, the immediate source of the Handelian oratorio lay in the Italian opera, though externally the course of Handel's career till 1740 was determined by the composition of opera, says Riemann. In retrospect, it appears as a preparation for oratorio, and all his activities resolved themselves into that. His previous essays in Italian and in German oratorio, La Resurrezione and The Brocker's Passion, would seem to portend a fusion of the two forms. Another important ingredient, however, was the sacred music of Purcell, the imitation of which, in Queen Anne's birthday ode, the Utrecht Te Deum, etc., had led Handel to form a style of choral composition. For the outstanding difference, the distinguishing characteristic of Handel's oratorio is the essential employment of the chorus, which rises to ever greater eminence, till at last, in the crowning works of the master, in The Messiah and in Samson, we see a grand choral drama interspersed with occasional solo passages. Handel had by that time conceived a choral fabric of such stupendous dimensions as would give the oratorio a place among the grandest art forms in existence. The chandos, tediums and anthems were the next step in that direction, and Esther represents the foundation upon which the gigantic structure of the later works was raised. It was Esther, indeed, which gave the direct impulse to the most momentous transition in Handel's career. That oratorio, originally composed for the chapel of the Duke of Chandos, was revived with action, scenery and costume by the children of the Chapel Royal in Westminster. It was twice repeated in a tavern in the Strand, and again performed without authority in April 1732 at the Great Room in Villa Street, York Buildings, at five shillings a head. Always alive to business advantages, Handel immediately announced a performance of it at his own opera house for the 2nd of May, by a great number of voices and instruments. The acting of sacred oratorio had been forbidden by the bishop, hence the advertisement said that there would be no acting, but the house will be fitted up in a decent manner for the audience. Handel had enlarged for this occasion the choruses and the orchestration, which now consisted of five violins, viola, cello, double bass, two oboes, two flutes, two bassoons, harp, theorbo, harpsichord, and organ, a combination which appears surprisingly modern in comparison with the freak proportions of some of the earlier operas. The unusual success of the experiment was no doubt responsible for the next effort of this kind, namely Deborah, performed in 1733, at double prices, which circumstance militated against large audiences and fanned the flame of opposition then raging about Handel. In the same year, Atalia was produced in Oxford, in which Handel came very near the form of the German chorale cantata. Deborah and Esther were also revived there with success. In Esther we divine the spark of Handel's future greatness. In other works, too, there are isolated numbers that touch the high-water mark of beauty, but in the whole of any of these there is little unity. 
the single numbers do not hang together. The whole scheme does not suggest homogeneity of conception or convey the poignant religious feeling, the purposeful intensity of the later works. With these qualities we meet for the first time in Saul, composed in 1738. This, says the admiring Rockstro, surpasses even the finest scenes presented in either of the three earlier works, and then he enthusiastically points to the Song of Triumph in the first act, with its picturesque carillon accompaniment, marking out each successive step in the procession, while the jealous monarch bursts with envy the wailing notes of the oboes and bassoons in the witch's incantation, the gloomy pomp of the terrible dead march, and the tender pathos of David's own personal sorrow, so clearly distinguished from that felt by the nation at large as some of its dramatic virtues. Israel in Egypt, Handel's next work, is, besides the Messiah, the only purely epic oratorio in which the chorus becomes the protagonist of the drama, and we are inclined to consider these two the greatest of all. That it was in advance of the public taste of the period is indicated by the poor reception accorded to Israel upon its first performance in 1740. It was considered so heavy that it had to be performed the second time with interpolated songs to lighten it up. Despite the fact that it was put together in a total of 17 days, that it consists to a large extent of the work of other men, 16 of the 39 numbers are plagiarised, and that it represents another instance of Handel's peculiar handicraft in reutilizing his own creations, it exhibits qualities which hardly any other of his works possesses in so great a measure. Instead of the stereotyped harmonic structure of dominant tonic, subdominant tonic, which stamps so much of his work as tedious and antiquated, we have here rich chromatic progressions and colourful modulations. The clear-cut note-for-note harmony is varied by a seething polyphonic web, which eloquently betrays Handel's early fugal training, a polyphony as diverse almost as that of the a cappella masters of the past, but resting firmly on a pure harmonic foundation, euphonious, sonorous, guided by solid laws of progression, but unrestrained in its freedom of movement. The chorus, They Loathed to Drink, adapted from one of his own organ fugues, is a fine example. It is in moments like these that Handel shows his kinship to his great countryman, Bach. The colossal double choruses, in which every resource of focal polyphony and harmonic power seems exhausted, are the most noted features of Israel and Egypt. Handel's reprehensible practice of appropriating the compositions of other and often obscure composers has been much discussed. To a modern artistic conscience, there is no excuse for such wholesale theft. How far it was justified by usage we are not able now to determine. At any rate, we are surprised at the absence of protests on the part of the composers of the pilfered works. It is true that by utilising their material, Handel often saved such compositions from certain oblivion, and that in handling it his masterful touch was such as to sanctify even dross. Moreover, the original parts are usually far superior to the appropriative ones. The only plausible explanation for the procedure can be found in the feverish haste with which he produced piece after piece, which would indicate an extraordinary rapacity for success, and probably material gain, an unsympathetic trait of character unfortunately associated with others as repugnant. In Israel, a Stradella Serenata, 
furnished the material for he speaketh the word, but as for his people, and believed the Lord. The antiphonal effect desired by Handel was most conveniently provided by the two orchestras in Stradella's work, which represent the two rival parties of musicians serenading the lover's mistress. The Lord is a man of war, represents a most ingenious form of plagiarism, for the voice parts are taken from a work by Erba, but the accompaniment figure is from Urio's Te Deum. Such artful utilizations and welding of foreign materials into a homogeneous and impressively artistic whole reveal Handel as the master workman of his time. Many other instances could be cited, but we content ourselves with the pleasant one as disposing of the matter. Without question, the pinnacle of Handel's creative mission was reached with the next oratorio, The Messiah, on which perhaps more than all the other works taken together rests Handel's place in the heart of modern music lovers. That monumental work was produced between August 22nd and September 14th, 1741, a period of 24 days. The compiler of the libretto was Charles Jennens, the quality of whose other literary performances have cast considerable doubt upon his claim to the origination of the altogether admirable plan. His comment on Handel's setting throws light on his conceited nature as well as upon the firm independence of the composer. He has made a fine entertainment of it, says Jennings, though not near so good as he might and ought to have done. I have with great difficulty made him correct some of the present faults, but he retained the overture obstinately, in which there are some passages far unworthy of Handel, but much more unworthy of the Messiah. Posterity has decreed otherwise with respect to the comparative merits of book and music. At any rate, the former is well-nigh ideal in the unity of thought and intensive continuity with which the story of the Saviour's life is unfolded from the prophecy to the last things. We have called the Messiah an epic oratorio. As there is, as Schering says, but a series of contemplative choruses, arias and recitatives on the Messiah idea, its psychological connection with the German cantata is much closer than with the Italian oratorio. As we have observed, Handel had been getting away more and more from the operatic style, both because of its form and because scriptural words only are used in it. We may, with Riemann, consider it as one great anthem. The work is too well known to require extended comment. Let us only remind the reader of the exquisite beauty of such lyric passages as I know that my Redeemer liveth, how beautiful are the feet, and behold and see, which are among the rarest gems of aria form in our possession. Powerful and passionate expressions such as occur in The People That Walked in Darkness are as rare in the literature of dramatic music, while the highly dramatic recitatives like Thy Rebuke Hath Broken are without question one of the completest realizations of the ideal of Peri and Monteverdi. The glorious choral effects in the Hallelujah Chorus, the stirring polyphony, now simultaneous, now imitative, reflect a potency and spiritual elevation that will perhaps never be surpassed. Lastly, let us not forget the beautiful pastoral symphony in which the exquisite Calabrian melody, the song of the Piferari, that Handel had heard in the early days at Rome is introduced. The Messiah was first performed on April 13, 1742, in Dublin, 
whither Handel had gone upon the invitation of the Duke of Devonshire, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. It was given for the benefit of a charitable society, and was well received. When in March of the following year it was performed in London, the audience, including the King, was so affected by the Hallelujah Chorus that at the words, For the Lord God Omnipotent reigneth, it instinctively rose. Thus it has remained customary in England for audiences to stand during the performance of that number. A number of other oratorios followed in regular succession. Samson in 1741, Joseph in 1743, Semele in 1744, and Belshazzar and Hercules in 1744. After an 18 months period of inactivity following another financial crisis, came the Occasional Oratorio, thus named, according to Chrysander, because its creation and performances were occasioned by peculiar passing circumstances, and Judas Maccabeus and Joshua, 1747, Solomon, 1748, Susanna, 1748, and Theodora, 1749. By this time the excessive popularity of Oratorio had waned also, and Theodora was so poorly attended that Handel remarked bitterly that the Jews, who had patronised his oratorios on Hebraic subjects quite largely, would not come because the subject was Christian, and the ladies stayed away because it was virtuous. Considering the notorious state of Harry Walpole's society, we may better understand this jest. The choice of Hercules, a secular oratorio, 1750, and Jephthah, composed in 1751, and performed in the following year, closed the series. During this time, Handel was afflicted with a disease, which eventually robbed him of his sight. Three operations for cataract were of no avail, and he remained blind, or nearly so, for the remainder of his life. It is a curious coincidence that Bach, at the end of his life, suffered a similar fate. Nevertheless, he laboured on. The practice of playing organ concertos between the parts of his oratorios which was a regular custom with him, he continued. Probably now they were purely improvisations, as indeed they had been with few exceptions theretofore. Those which he wrote down seemed to have answered the purpose merely of providing material at times when inspiration lagged. Handel's instrumental music is, like Bach's, based on the solid German fugal technique, but unlike that master's, it is strongly influenced by Italian violin music, and especially by that of Corelli. It is characterised by distinguished simplicity, clearness of outline and terseness of utterance. By virtue of their broad thematic formation and the direct force of their expression, his violin sonatas, trio sonatas and concerti grossi are superior to those of Corelli. He wrote also a number of pieces for harpsichord, and as early as 1720 had published Lessons for the Harpsichord, which was reprinted in Germany, France, Switzerland and Holland. Before 1740, he composed no less than 12 sonatas for the violin or flute with figured bass, 13 trio sonatas for two violins, oboes or flutes, and bass, 6 concerti grossi, known as the oboe concerti, and 5 other orchestral concerti, 20 organ concerti, 12 concerti for strings, and many suites, fantasies and fugues for piano and organ. But it is not evident that he attached great importance to his instrumental works. He regarded them rather as great storehouses of material upon which he drew, as we have seen, 
at will for his larger vocal compositions. The last of Handel's labours were the production of the English version of The Triumph of Time and Truth, originally composed in 1708, at Covent Garden in 1757, and the conducting of the annual performance of the Messiah at the Foundling Hospital in London. This charitable labour, as well as his support for the fund for helpless musicians and other acts of benevolence, betokens Handel's generosity. He attended another performance of his most popular oratorio at Covent Garden, April 6, 1759, eight days before his death, which occurred at his house in Brook Street on the 14th of that month. The master was buried in Westminster Abbey, among the nation's great. Englishmen may well claim him as one of their own, notwithstanding his German birth and parentage, but not only had he become a naturalised British subject in 1726, but he had entered thoroughly into the spirit of British society, and adapted himself to its habits of mind. Throughout its later period, his career was closely identified with the British crown. Upon taking the oath of allegiance, he became officially composer to the court. As such, upon the coronation of George II in 1727, he composed four great anthems for the occasion, and conducted an exceptionally large orchestra in which a double bassoon, constructed under Handel's supervision, was used for the first time. Again in 1737, he wrote a deeply affecting mourning anthem for the burial of Queen Caroline, and altogether he came to share, in an unusual degree, the patriotic veneration of the English people. Moreover, his ideals were in a large measure shaped by English public opinion. It is doubtful indeed whether his work would ever have attained its great lasting value had it not been turned away from the channels of Italian opera by the sheer force of popular taste. What his genius would have brought forth, had he, like Bach, remained within the local sphere of his birthplace, is an interesting speculation. Handel's fame increased steadily until the time of his death. Though the opposition against him had lost much of its force, it was a more or less constant irritation and embarrassment to him till late in his life. His own character, his irascible temper, and his stubbornness no doubt were in a measure responsible for this. But men who are aggressive and successful not uncommonly incur the wrath of jealous rivals, and few men have been as successful as Handel, notwithstanding his repeated failures. He was a big man, built on a large scale both mentally and physically. He rose to heights rarely attained by men of his profession, and it was inevitable that his pride should sometimes go to the length of arrogance. Many are the anecdotes testifying to his tyrannical nature, his ruthless manners, his ponderous pomposity, and his abnormal appetite. Some of all that is reflected in his work. We often hear the vain, self-sufficient boar through the interminable roulades and runs, the ponderous chords, the diatonic sonorities of his scores. On the other hand, the man of the world, the successful courtier, the shrewd homme d'affaires, shines through. As Maitland says, studying all but a few exceptionally inspired pages of his works, we remain conscious of the full-bottomed wig, the lace ruffles, and all the various details of his costume. But those two pages are enough to place him among the greatest of the great. If we can justly say that he sums up the achievement of his own generation of music, as far as it corresponds to the taste of the period, it must not be thought that he passed nothing on to the next. The oratorio, 
his special gift to the world, will always remain inseparably connected with his name. He had left nothing but his inspired works in that form to serve as models for posterity. His claim to immortality would be assured. End of section 27